This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, everybody, tonight we have a class on Parsha Bishalach, which is one of my favorite parshiot, and it's something which we remember every single day of our lives. We sing the Shira in the Shacharit. We sing the Shira. We're meant to sing the Shira. As Yashim Moshe, if you don't sing it every morning, at least on Shabbat, we should sing the Shira. The great song the Jews sang when the crossing of the sea, Baruch Hashem. So I want to talk a bit about the progression of events. So really that uh, we know that uh, Hashem tells Parol through Moses and through Aaron, he says, we want three days in the desert to serve our God, three days. So really, technically, it should have taken just three days to get to Mount Sinai. They should have left Egypt and three days later, Mount Sinai. Unfortunately, it takes them seven weeks, seven weeks of the Omer, and instead of three days. So what happened? And the answer is, Hashem's promise at the burning bush to Moshe was Egypt to Canaan with a stopover at Har Sinai after three days, just a Thanksgiving service. Instead, Hashem reroutes them. There's a rerouting of the Jewish people via the Red Sea. So it took seven weeks to Har Sinai. If we're going to talk about, that's what we celebrate. Shavuot is seven days, uh, seven weeks after Pesach. So seven weeks after Pesach, that is the rerouting of the Jewish people through through the Red Sea and through Sinai. Okay, so God's original intent was for Israel to accept God before the exodus. Had they done so, they would have gone directly to Har Sinai. We're going to see that it's impossible to change people overnight. That's a problem. It wasn't, you know, Hashem could do all these miracles. Miracles can change someone, you know, somewhat. For example, you listen to an inspiring speech, you, li- you see an inspiring video, and a person says, wow, I'm inspired. How long does that inspiration last? Maybe a couple of hours, maybe a day, maybe two days, maybe three days, maybe a week. So the inspiration of these miracles died down pretty quickly. And Hashem has to keep on providing these miracles to build the Jewish people's belief system up from zero to whatever, it's minus 49, the rabbis say, you know, the rabbi, the Jews were on the 49th level of Tumah, which is minus 49 to plus 49. So 49 level of Tumah, which means they were totally, they were gone. They were idolaters. We talked about last week. They were idolaters, as the prophet Ezekiel says. And God's intent was for B'nai Israel to accept God before the exodus. Had they done so, they would have gone directly to Har Sinai in three days. Although offering the Pesach offering we talked about last week made them worthy enough to survive the 10th plague, they were not ready for the giving of the Torah. They were not ready to receive the Torah. And therefore, this week's parasha discusses five major events, five major events, which is a very interesting structure. It talks about number one is the Yamsuf, which we're going to talk about shortly. The Yamsuf, they were attacked by the Egyptians, but the Egyptians couldn't get hold of them. Number two is they arrive at a place called Mara. Mara comes with Mar, which is bitter. The water over there was bitter. Number three is they go to Midbar Sin, which is appropriate name, uh, English at least, Midbar Sin, the wilderness of Sin, which is Sin, S-I-N. In, uh, in Hebrew, obviously, it's a different name, Midbar Sin. And over there, there's no food, and they cry for food. We're going to talk about how the manna fell. And then they go to a place called Refidim, and there was no water there to drink. And there, number five, this is the preamble to Matantara next week. The preamble is they go to Rafidim and they're attacked by Amalek. So we have this structure over here, this parasha, five events. Number one, preparation for war, attacked by the Egyptians. Number two is bitter water. Number three, no food. Number four, no water to drink. And number five, they're attacked by Amalek, another war. So war, water, food, water, war. What a kind of structure is that? Preparation for Arsinai. Each event prepares for Matan Torah to break the slave mentality. That's what we have to talk about. To break, how do you change a person's mentality? We find that in the previous parasha, and parasha Shemot, it says, They didn't listen to Moshe. The strain of their servitude had broken their spirituality. It's come out hundreds of years of servitude. They worked for 190 years, 190 years, 210 years in Egypt. And uh, they were dependent on their physical masters. They cannot think of a spiritual master they can't see. That's Hashem. 
They must transfer their physical dependence on Egypt to a spiritual dependence on God. And a change of character can usually be done in two ways. Number one, one traumatic event, a very big traumatic event can change someone drastically. There's a famous, famous story, I heard this many times, a uh, beautiful story about three Israelis who go on a trek in, uh, in South Africa somewhere, in Kenya, and they pitch their tent, and they're sleeping for the night, and all of a sudden, two of them wake up, and they hear screams, help, help, in Hebrew, Ezra, Ezra, and they wake up, and they see their friend, the third friend, is sitting up in the bed with a boa constrictor around him, squeezing him tight, and the friends shrug, what can they do? Yeah, we don't have any weapons, we don't have anything. We're going to fight a boa constrictor with our bare hands. So they quickly tell the guy, say Shema. So the guy says, I don't know Shema. Say with me. Shema Yisrael Hashem, Barakeinu Hashem Echad. And believe it or not, the boa constrictor leaves him. He leaves, they leave the third friend. And that third friend becomes a Baal Teshuvah. <laughs> so the question is, what about the guys who watched him? They don't know. We didn't become body true, but why? It didn't happen to us. So the joke is, if it doesn't happen to you, it's not going to ha- It's not going to change you. So a traumatic event changed a person. One going through a traumatic event. There's no atheists in foxholes. You know, they asked uh, McCain. And if you remember McCain, the, uh, he was a senator, Senator McCain. He was a prisoner in, I think it was Vietnam or, or North Korea. I can't remember, or Korea. And uh, he was a prisoner. They asked him, what were you doing in, in jail? And he said, a man does a lot of praying in jail. Uh, can you imagine? So there's no atheists in foxholes. A traumatic event can change someone. Sudden change, traumatic occurrence. Number two, a long period of change of routine. Routine can change a person. You know, there's a, there's a beautiful Sefer Achinuch. Who is the Sefer Achinuch? The Book of Education. If you don't have it, get it. Book of Education, Sefer Achinuch. He goes through the mitzvot in every single parasha in the Torah. So every week he goes through the mitzvot. It gives you the little bit of the understanding of the mitzvot, how to do them, how to perform them. And then he talks about the rationale behind them. And last week's parasha is a mitzvah of not breaking the bones of the Pesach offering. So he says, you know what? Why would you not break the bones? So I always thought, you know, the reason why we don't break the bones of the Pesach offering is we want the Egyptians to see the skeleton of their God. We ate their God, right? We ate your God. The lamb was their God. The sheep we talked about last week. We ate your God and here are the bones. I always thought, you know, we're reminding them, you know, that their God is impotent, you know. However, the Sefer Achimus has a beautiful idea. He says the idea of not breaking the bones was to educate us to act like nobility. Nobility does not crunch bones and suck out the, the... Nobility is eats very, very daintily. Nobility. We have to be educated to be noble. And then he says an amazing idea. This is in a few places in Sefer Achinuch, the book of education. He says, because what changes a person is not thoughts, but what changes a person is actions. I think this is the first thesis of behavior modification. He says the Torah is behavior modification. You know, it's, it's a new branch of psychology, which is used today, especially with autistic kids. Change their behavior and you'll change the pattern of the way they think. You can join their circuits together. You can change someone's behavior. You can change the way they think, the way their brain works. It's interesting. It's being used today in tremendous effect with autistic kids and other kids. Uh, behavior modification. He says the Torah is a method. He doesn't say behavior modification. But that's really what he's saying. The Torah is a method of behavior modification. You can change the way a person acts. You can change the way a person thinks. We always think the other way. You can change the way a person thinks, you change the way they act. He says, no. Change the way you act and you change the way you think. See, a person who's very, very uh, miserly. You change the way you act, just give Siddhaka. A person comes to the, you know, sitting in the shul over here, there's at least five, six people a day in the mornings going through the shul, collecting money. So give them a little bit, uh, give them a shekel, a shekel a day, a shekel a day to each one. And you'll build up your understanding of the mitzvah tzedakah, and you'll build up your tendency to give. So a person was a miser, just give. There's a beautiful story that says, there was a, a, I can't remember the names of these rabbis, but it was like 200 years ago in Europe. And the town was really, people were desperate. People were really desperate. There was a shortage of money, shortage of food. And they were, the town had one big rich man, but he was known as a big miser. 
So the people were desperate. The rabbis were desperate. What should we do? One guy says, you know, we have to go to that. There's no choice. So a bunch of rabbis, they go, delegation, they make a delegation. They go knock on the door. And he's sitting over in his luxurious house with his butler and his baker and who knows what else. And they say, please, we're desperate. The, the people in town are desperate. They have no way of survival. They don't have food. They don't have uh, heat. They don't have anything. Please, can you help us? And the guy, you know, he makes a face. And, and, and all the other rabbis are looking at this guy. And he said, listen, we told you so. He's not going to give a penny. Then he goes, he goes to his safe. And he goes to the safe. And he comes out. And he takes him a little copper coin. And he puts it on the table. Like he's doing them a big favor. And the other rabbi said, let's get out of here. Let's throw the copper coin on his face. And the rabbi said, no. This rabbi said, let's take the copper coin. And let's appreciate it. Let's thank him for it. So they took it and they thanked him. And he says, oh, you're thanking me. Okay, here's another coin. And he takes another coin, another coin. He keeps on going. And the trick is to start someone from giving. Start someone giving. You know, we, we learn in... Uh, in rabbinical school, they taught us the art of stunt, uh, fundraising. Who do you go to? Do you, give a, do you go to a guy who always gives or do you go to a guy who never gave before? And they tell you, always go to a guy who gives. When he's a giver, he's a giver. Go to a guy who never given, doesn't know the flavor of giving. So it's the behavior that changes a person. So we're going to see how, how did Hashem change these people's, these former slaves' behavior patterns? How did Hashem change them? So traumatic occurrences, for sure. That's for sure. Ten plagues, the crossing of the sea, traumatic occurrences, the, the giving of the Torah is pretty traumatic. We're going to talk about it next week. But also with the change of routine. Change of routine. So we're going to talk about the change of routine, the manna falling every single day, going to collect the manna every single day with the change of routine. And that's how you change people. It's two things. There's two ways of changing people. One is with a a very big event, traumatic event. We don't want to go through that in our lives. But the other way is slowly by changing a person's routines. Um, give you an example. There's a rabbi I know who was a rabbi in Vancouver. And in his first interview in Vancouver, they asked him, Rabbi, what do you want? How much money do you want? He said, I don't want money. I want you to guarantee me a minion every day. So look at each other, say, how can we guarantee this guy a minion? It's easier if he has this money. At least money we can guarantee. But minion, how are you going to get a minion in this, in this town, this uh, faraway town with hardly a minion? So he says, listen, I don't want money. I just want a minion. So I say, wow, this rabbi is serious. He wants a minion. Okay, rabbi, you come, we'll get you a minion. Okay. So he goes there, and now all of a sudden, you know, there's, rota, there's a rota system. This guy comes on Monday. This guy comes on Tuesday. He has a minion. And then after a few weeks, he hears these guys scratching their heads. What happened to us? We used to come once or twice a year, and now we're coming nearly every day. <laughs> so the answer is, when they get into a routine, that changes the person. Getting into the routine, that's the hard part. Changing habits, that's the hard part. If you can change, the secret of everything is habit. The secret of everything is, that's one of the secrets of changing people's uh, belief system, changing people's behavior. It's change the behavior, that's it. Get into a habit, get into a new habit. That's it. So Kiryat Gamsuf, let's talk about it. The crossing of the sea. So what happens is Paro, he gets the ten plagues. The tenth plague was just too much for him. He get he throws the people out, get out of here, he get middled up in the middle of the night, tells Moshe, get out of here, take the people and go. And, and Moshe says, We're not going till the morning. We're not gonna leave Egypt like a bunch of thieves in the midnight. We're gonna go in the morning. So he left in the morning with the heads held high, taking everything with them. The Midrash says every Jew had 90 donkeys full of gold, silver, clothes, and everything. The precious belongings of the Egyptians were emptied out when they left. Why? That was their wages. The back wages of Kimak, all these slaves working for so many years for nothing. So the back wages they took with them. Now, that's what God promised Abraham. He says, your, your uh, descendants are going to be slaves in a foreign land 400 years, and they're going to live. They're going to leave the foreign land with Rehush Gadol, with a lot of booty, a lot of belongings. So that's what happened. Hashem fulfilled his promise. Hashem wants to break the bonds. But Pharaoh, you know, he's, he's uh, pretty, you know, he can't rely on him. Soon after that, he changes his mind. The Jews go three days and they don't come back. And all the way back, he gets his army together, whatever survivors, 
all the plagues. And he ch- chases after them, 600 chariots, the best chariots. And everyone else he had, his, his infantry and his cavalry, they're all chasing after these Jews in the desert. And they catch up with them on the Yamsuf. So, Kiryat Yamsuf, it's going to break their bonds to their old masters. How can you break the bonds of a slave to his old master? The only way is to see the old master helpless. When the slave sees his old master helpless, or even worse, we're going to talk about, then he can break the bonds of the slave. That's what Hashem arranged. Hashem arranged that these former slaves would see their masters helpless. So, so the Jews also had an extra fear. The extra fear was to die in a desert. It's bad enough to die in Egypt. At least in Egypt, there's probably graves and there's uh, graveyards and they know they've been buried there for hundreds of years. Their parents are there, grandparents, great-grandparents. I'm going to die in a desert. Who's going to find my grave? Who's going to say Kaddish for me? Who's going to pray for me? Who's going to be by my, my grave? But this is Hashem promises them. You see them now, you're not going to see these Egyptians again. The Ramban says this is a commandment. Don't see the Egyptians again. Don't even think about them. Don't go back to Egypt. We're not, we, we know there's a command in the Torah saying not to go back to Egypt. And the Rambam, Maimonides, we know, had to go to Egypt because he had to run away. He's always running away. He ran away from Spain. That was his bar mitzvah president. He ran to Morocco, and then he runs away from Morocco. They were converted Jews by the sword. He goes to Israel, and Israel was under the Crusaders, and they were capturing these uh, Jewish rabbis and ransoming them off. He had to run away after three months to Egypt. The only place he could find was Egypt. So he's, it, said the, it says when he signed his name, Rambam, it says, I am Moshe by my mom transgressing the mitzvah of living in Egypt. <laughs> what can I do? <laughs> I'm transgressing this mitzvah of not going back to Egypt. There's, no, there's a mitzvah of not going back to live in Egypt. You can visit Egypt, but just don't live there. Don't live in Egypt. But that's a mitzvah. The Torah, the Ramban says, a mitzvah also not to see the Egyptians. The Jews had a mitzvah not to see the Egyptians again. At least don't see them again. Don't see them in the same way as don't you know, don't see them as your masters. That's the mitzvah. Don't see them as your masters. Don't look to them for redemption. Okay. So we're going to see uh, what's going on over here. So now what happens is they're by the sea and they see this cloud of sand. The Egyptians are running. The Egyptians are running, chasing them. And uh, Hashem tells Moshe, tell the Jews to camp by you will camp uh, between the sea and Migdol just by Baal Tzaphon. Baal Tzaphon was the god of the Egyptians, the god of their borders. This is really tantalizing. This is why Pharaoh had the guts to chase after them. Because the Jews, this is Hashem playing a trick on Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh says, I got a god by the border of Egypt in the north called Baal Zephon, the god of the north. And what happened is the Jews were camping by Baal Zephon. It seems like they couldn't leave Baal Zephon. Baal Zephon trapped them. And Hashem says, Jews, you camp right by Baal Zephon. Let's, uh, let's get confused this, Paro. So Paro says, the Jews are trapped by Baal Zephon. Let me chase after them. He's a fearless Paro. I will harden his heart. He's going to chase after you. And he, sure enough, he chased after them. And the Jews see this dust storm. The dust storm in the distance, Pharaoh's coming. Oh, God. So there are four different ways people, and this is a very important idea for us, anyone with challenges in life, that's all of us, we all have challenges in life. Four different ways people react to challenges in life. I'm not talking about simple challenges, I'm talking about major challenges in life. So three, four different ways of Reacting to challenges, number one, the Midrash says there are four groups of Jews. They split into four groups. Some of them said, let's go back to Egypt. Let's surrender and go back to Egypt. It's better to be a slave in Egypt and safe and sound and not in the desert and not at the hands of the Egyptians to die by the hands of the Egyptians. Let's surrender. Number two, they said, let's go and fight the Egyptians. We came out with military equipment from Egypt. Hamushim, the Torah says, the pshat, the simple pshat in the Torah is they came out well laden with armaments. They came out well armed. We're going to see they did fight Amalek, so they did have weapons. Let's fight the Egyptians, second group. 
The third group says, let's pray to God. Hashem is here with us. Let's pray to God and God will save us. Number four, he said, let's jump into the sea. Okay, let, there are four groups. Let's recap. We're going to go one by one. Okay, so the first group says, I'm going to go nine order, okay? Let's pray to God. Let's pray to God. We're in God's hands. So we need to pray. So this is the religious group, right? We know there's a God. Hashem saved us from its shrine, ten plagues. Let's pray to God. And we know this, all these tests are tests of faith. So let's pray to God. Everything is, is in the hands of heaven. And if God receives our prayers, he'll, he'll help us. No problem. He'll, he created us in order that we'll pray to him. So what happens is, Hashem doesn't say, don't pray. He says, don't pray now. Now is not the time. Why are you crying to me? He tells Moshe. Moshe Abedu is praying. And Hashem tells Moshe, why are you crying to me? And Rashi says, what do you mean, why are you crying to me? He says, now is not the time to pray. It's amazing. Imagine. person says, you know, I'm religious. I really believe in God. There's a war coming. I'm going to pray. Okay, good. There's a time to pray. And there's a time to fight. And there's a time to run. And there's a time to hide. <laughs> there's a time for everything. Everything has a time. How do I know? King Solomon says so. In Ecclesiastes and Kohelet. And this became a famous song. I'm not going to repeat the song. But these are words of Kohelet. It's a time to live. A time to die. A time to be happy. A time to be sad. There's a time for everything. Everything has a time. Hashem says now is not the time to pray. Pray fast and then act. Don't pray a long, lengthy prayer. Now is not the time to pray. That's interesting because we think, you know, we're religious. And Hashem would say, encourage us, you know, want to pray. Hashem would say, yay, pray to me and you see I'll do miracles. Yes, no, not time to pray. Number two, he said, let's go and fight with them. Okay. And then let's do a hishtadlut. The, bear, the Egyptians are coming. We're going to fight. Maybe Hashem will help us to beat them. That was Bar Kokhba, right? The Bar Kokhba revolt. Maybe Hashem will help us and we'll defeat them. Let's fight with them. You know, sometimes it's successful. The Maccabees were successful. Sometimes it's not so successful. So it all depends. And it depends on, listen, if you have a hotline to God, why not use it? That's what Moses does. He uses hotline to God. God I wish we had a hotline to God. I wish... We all have hotlines to God. The problem is we don't get replies that we that is intelligible to us immediately. Sometimes we do. You know, a person is Ruach HaKodesh. He gets the holy insights, but usually we don't get these holy insights. So we have a hotline to God. We're praying, Hashem, give me this. Help me do this, do that. Sometimes the answer doesn't come immediately. Sometimes we'll see the answer many years later. Hashem says, this is the answer I'm giving you. But we don't see it directly. We only have a one-way hotline. Moses had a two-way hotline. So, so here we are. The second group is saying, let's fight. Let's be pragmatic. Uh, you have to also do your hishtadlut. You have to try your best. You have to pray. And you also have to do hishtadlut. We'll pray. And we'll also fight. And Hashem says, don't fight. Hashem ilachem lachem. Hashem will fight for you. Atem tacharishun. Just keep quiet. There's a time to fight. There's a time not to fight. When you have a hotline to God, you know exactly what to do. Hashem says, don't pray too much, don't fight. Okay, so third group, let's go back to Egypt, let's surrender. And Hashem says, you won't see them again. You won't see the Egyptians again. You're not going back to Egypt. You can't turn the clock back. You have left Egypt. Egypt should be out of your out of sight and out of your mind. The trouble is that they always had this refrain for 40 years. We're going to go back to Egypt. We'll go back to Egypt. We'll go back to Egypt. This is the hardest thing. That's why they needed 40 years in the desert. Not to think that thought again. You know, so hard. A person makes Aliyah to Israel. And then they always think, you know, should I go back? Should I not go back? You know, is it more comfortable over there? I can make a living easier over there. I'll go back. Don't think of Egypt. That's it. Um, it's very hard. It's a big test. And uh, it's a person sometimes, you know, person makes aliyah once, person makes aliyah twice, sometimes people make aliyah three times. <laughs> so uh, it's a big test. And that's the test thing. 
the, the first test of coming out of Egypt was don't go back. That's the biggest test. And we find 40 years of the death, they always want to go back. Hashem says, you won't see Egypt again. Don't think of them. Don't even think about it. You're not going to see them again. Number four. There was a group that said, let's jump into the sea. Now, what does that mean? Is that suicide? Do we ever recommend suicide? We find in our history, we do find the story of Gamla. I don't know if you heard of Gamla. Gamla was a city in the Golan, which the archaeological digs and the Romans conquered the city. And it says there's a group of Jews inside the city warriors who decided, you know, we're not going to surrender. We're going to fight to the last person, but we're going to kill all our children and our wives, and then we're going to kill each other. We're going to commit suicide rather than fall into the hands of the Romans. Josephus, who is the commander, tells the story. Unfortunately, he wrote the book, History of the Jews. We don't know how much of it is uh, reliable because he himself was he surrendered to the Romans and he became what's known as a traitor. Now, we can't really judge him. We don't know. Um, we don't know what it's like to be in that situation. But he was, two people survived. The last two men, imagine they killed everyone else and they survived. They took turns to kill each one. And they survived and then they decided they're not going to die. They're going to go and surrender to the Romans. And Josephus was successful in that sense. The Romans adopted him, and he became one of the official historians. This Jew, who's the commander of the Golan and the commander of the Galilee, surrendered, eventually tried to fight, and he just saw it's impossible against the might of Rome. He surrendered, and he became the official historian to the Roman Empire. He wrote the book, History of the Jews, um, and you can get it today in many languages. It's available, History of the Jews. It makes interesting reading. But you can't rely on it 100%. So we do find Gamla, we do find Masada, the story again. Josephus tells the story of Masada, how they kill the Jews, kill themselves. Maybe is that what these people are saying? Let's jump into the sea. Now, that seems to be the literal understanding of this, that the Jews wanted to commit suicide to get away from the Egyptians. You know, we're not going to fight. We're not going to go back. We have no fight left into us. Uh, we're not going to bother praying. We're just going to jump into the sea and that's it. Or... Was it a very good statement? Let's jump into the sea. We have faith in God. God is going to split the sea. And we find that Nachshon ben Aminadav did jump into the sea. And there's two reasons why the sea split. One reason is because he jumped into the sea. The Amunah that he had split the sea. And the second reason is we're going to see it's going to be in the song that we sing, the Shira. Called Shira Tayyam, the song of the sea tells us why did the sea split? It says, The sea saw and it split. Okay. So what did the sea see? It's hard to say this. Sea, sea. Okay. And the sea saw and the sea sees. What does the sea see? The sea, number one, is we always think of the seas as inanimate objects. How could it see? But we see the malach. The angel on the sea saw some merits. The sea split because of certain merits. The Midrash says, the sea says, which is the angel on the sea says, the these are worshipped idols, the Jews worshipped idols, and the Egyptians worshipped idols. Why should I split the sea for, this, for these uh, Jews? They also worshipped idols. So there's two aspects the Midrash says. One is the sea saw the emunah of Nachshon ben Aminadav. When the angel of the sea saw Jews jumping into the sea because God says, go into the sea and it's going to split, the sea had to split. The second, the second Midrash says, the sea saw the bones of Joseph. Moses was bringing the bones of Joseph in a coffin out of Egypt. Joseph told the tribes, when you leave Egypt, take my bones with you. Sure enough, Moses, Sadiq, we're going to see, and the Jews were collecting the wealth of Egypt. Moses was busy doing the mitzvah, bringing the bones of Joseph. And so maybe when it says they jumped into the sea, the fourth group said jumped into the sea. They were jumping to the sea not to commit suicide. They were jumping into the sea because God says, go into the sea. Go into the sea on the dry land. Go into the sea on the dry land. And that's what they did. And their merits, Nachshon ben Aminadab was the first one from the tribe of Judah. Nachshon. He was the prince of the tribe of Judah. He jumped in. 
the sea starts splitting. It says he walked into the sea up to his mouth, his nostrils. It really was, there was no way out. And the sea split. So now, what does Moshe Rabbeinu tell the Jewish people? How do you calm down people who are panicking? Now, this is really the first lesson. The first lesson when facing a major challenge is don't panic. It's so hard. It's so hard. A lot of people die because they panic. There's a fire and people panic. There, there's, a, there's a storm at the sea and the boat and people panic. And they lost because they can't think straight. The first lesson in life, we have to teach our children, the first lesson in life is don't panic. Don't panic. You panic, you lose your mind and you're lost. Don't lose your sense of logic and rationale. And don't lose your trust in God. Don't panic. So what does Moshe Rabbeinu tell them? Moshe says, Hit yaseh, Moshe Rabbeinu says. Stand still like a rock. Don't panic. Stand still and see Hashem's salvation. Stand still. What does that mean? Don't panic. person's got to learn, number one, is don't panic. First rule in life, don't panic. Don't panic. Even face with terrible problems and troubles that you must never panic. You know, it says in the, in the 73 war, it's terrible, Yom Kippur War. I remember that Yom Kippur War. I was a little boy, I was a teenager in England, and we heard someone came into the synagogue praying, praying Yom Kippur. There's a war, Syria and Egypt have attacked Israel. Boy, boy, boy. And the Syrians really made tremendous headway. They both made headway. And the, the situation of Golan, Golan was really tough. The Syrians had hundreds of tanks and they knocked out most of the Jewish tanks, Israeli tanks. There were two tanks left. And the two tanks kept on firing. And because they never lost their guts, they never lost, they never panicked. They lasted till reinforcements came. That's amazing. Why? Because they never panicked. One of the heroes of that war is still around, Kahalani. His name is Kahalani. (laughs) He's a great man. And he served Israel uh, many, and I think he was a politician, he became a politician eventually. Uh, brave man, can you imagine, never lost his guts. Can you imagine, amazing, amazing. So beautiful, beautiful, really beautiful. Don't panic. And so every one of these, Hashem has an answer. For every one of these groups, Hashem has an answer. You don't have to fight, Hashem's going to fight for you. Don't go back, you'll never see Egypt again. Don't cry to me. It's not a time to pray. Well, at least lengthy prayer. What should we do? Keep walking. Keep going in life. The answer to a lot of problems is keep moving. Don't lose your sense of direction. Hashem wants you to do certain things. Just keep on plodding ahead. Don't give up. Don't panic. Just keep plodding around, just like Jewish history. How do we survive Jewish history? We just kept on going. That's the answer. Jewish people have to just keep on going. We lick our wounds and we just keep on going. That's the secret. Secret is just keep on going. Sometimes it's through the sea. Yes, going through the exile, the terrible exile we've been through is like crossing the sea. It's, it's probably worse than crossing the sea. The sea split for us. And you know what? The fact is the exile split for us as well. We're still here. And we came back, Baruch Hashem. So it's a miracle. We are seeing, we're witnessing the sea splitting in different sense. Okay, let's move on to Rabbi Pam. Rabbi Pam was one of the great rabbis in America. Alava Shalom. It says, Vaikach Moshe Atzmod Yosef. The Gemara says in Sota, Dafyud Gimel Amad Alafyud 13a, it says, While Bene Israel were busy emptying out of Egypt with the booty, Moshe was involved with a mitzvah of carrying out the bones of Yosef. It says no one knew where the bones of Yosef were, except for Serach Barasher. Serach Barasher was blessed by Yaakov to have long life. Legend is she never died, whatever that means. She's in Gan Eden somewhere, alive somewhere, and her body never died. She was a Sedeket. Why? She was blessed by Yaakov. She broke the news to Yaakov in a song that Yosef, his son, is still alive. They didn't want, they were scared of breaking the news to Yaakov. He was mourning for his long lost son. You cannot even tell the good news to someone without sometimes giving them a shock. So she said, I'll break the news to my grandpa. And she put a song together. She started singing a song. Yosef is still alive. You're still alive. And this song went into Yaakov's years. 
And Yaakov says, oh, Yaakov, Yosef is alive. I'll see my son. And truth is, he was, he was alive. And Yaakov was happy. He became happy knowing that the news. And he blessed her with all his heart. You're never going to die. You're going to live forever. And she was the one who told Moshe in Egypt where Yosef was buried. The Egyptians put him in a lead casket and they put it to the bottom of the river Nile. Okay. And that's the secret over there. Moshe is busy trying to get up his bub. There's bones of Yosef, and he's carrying the bones out of Egypt. And the, and the Talmud says in Sota, it says, Hacham lev mitzvot. A wise person will grab mitzvot. You know, see people around us, you know, people are doing all sorts of things. But a wise person will grab the only thing that is going to stand for them in the next world, mitzvot. It's like a person goes to the next world and says, what do you have with you? Well, I have, a, oh, I'm a millionaire, got millions of dollars. Sorry, we don't take that currency over here. What currency do you take? Well, we only take mitzvot. Well, I can change my dollars into mitzvot. Too late. You can do that in this world. You can't do that in that world. So that's what King Solomon says. A wise person will take mitzvot. Moshe Rabbeinu was wise. What did he take out of Egypt? <laughs> Everyone else took money. He takes mitzvot. He's carrying the bones of Yosef. You know, how many leaders would carry a person's body on their back when they're leading the Jewish people? This is wild. It's like he had a, he had this, uh, what do you call it, a backpack. Hey, Moses, what's in your backpack? Oh, the bones of Yosef. Bones, bones of Yosef. I'm going to carry these bones with me. I'm going to bury him in Israel. Unfortunately, he never completed the mission. And he died in, in Moab, we say, we're going to talk about. But he never completed that mission. That was his mission, to bury the bones of Yosef. And we're going to see later on, it says, when Yitro came, he saw two boxes leading the Jews. Who are the two boxes? What's in these boxes? He says, one is the bones of Yosef, and the other is the Ten Commandments. So, so Yitro can't, he's scratching his head. He said, why are you putting the bones of, of Yosef on the same level as the, as the Ten Commandments? You know, surely the Ten Commandments should go first. So they told him, he kept what's written in here. Yosef was the one who kept the Ten Commandments, and therefore his bones are treated the same holiness of the Ten Commandments. Interesting, Midrashim, but Moshe was busy, he knew. I need to take out the bones of Yosef. Why did he need to take the bones of Yosef? Every Jew that left Egypt had 90 donkeys full of gold, silver, and fine clothing. The Gemara says in Bechorot, page 5b, and uh, to fulfill the promise Hashem gave to Abraham, they're going to leave Egypt with tremendous bounty. However, Moshe, he took mitzvah with him. He took the bones of Yosef, the tremendous mitzvah of doing chesed to the dead, which is called chesed shalemet, true chesed, true kindness, something you can never get paid back. Yosef was dead. There's no way Yosef can pay him back. He's doing it only for the sake of chesed, true chesed. So what happens? The Yalkut Shimoni says, when the sea split, only when it saw the coffin of Yosef. And that's what we say in the song. This is a psalm. King David has a whole psalm about the crossing of the sea and the history of the Jews coming out of Egypt. Amazing, the psalms in the book of Psalms. You look it up uh, in the book of Psalms. The sea saw and fled. What did the sea? Midrash Rabbah says, the sea saw bones of Yosef. Why? What's it going to do with the sea splitting? So the word used, talking about the sea running away, is the same word used in the parasha of Yosef. It says, When Potiphar's wife was coming on Yosef, it says he ran away. The word is in the same place, in two places, the same word. It's like Zereshavah, it's called. Two words in the two places, the same word. The sea soared and ran and Yosef ran. Yosef ran away. He ran outside. He ran outside from this, this woman who was trying to get him. And that's why the sea ran. The sea saw that this Yosef that ran away. So the Midrash Rabbah says, look at this. The reward for Yosef running away from Potiphar's wife. The mouth that did not kiss with a sin. Paro tells Yosef. Your mouth will be kissed by all the nation. People are going to come and kiss his hand. His body that did not do a sin. Pharaoh said, commanded his, his uh, servants, clothe him in the best linen garments. His 
his neck that did not bow for a sin. He asked him, he put a gold chain around his neck. That's amazing. His hands not touch an Pharaoh took off the, the ring from his hands and he put it on the hand of Yosef. Strange, strange language. He didn't put his finger, he put it in his hand. His hands were not used for Navira for a sin. Yosef did not use his hands for a sin. He gets rewarded. The ring of the viceroy of Egypt is on his finger. The legs did not go towards a sin. He got a special chariot. His reward was a special chariot, the chariot of the viceroy of Egypt. His mind that did not think of an Avirah. Pharaoh calls him a man who is wise and understanding because his mind was pure, he was wise and understanding. However, the reward, the real reward, was much later when the sea split. The sea split because of the merit of Yosef. Yosef ran, the sea ran from Yosef. Ramchal says with Zali Sharim, path of the just. Sur Run away from evil and do good. But there's two, two primary things. If a person wants to be a prophet, the Ramchal has a whole book. Path of the just, 13 steps for prophecy. This is this is compulsory reading for every budding prophet, right? The path of the just. You want to be a prophet, prophetess, compulsory reading. Path of the just. Beautiful, he starts off, keep away from evil and do good. So Yosef ran away from evil. Who did good? Nachshon ben Aminadav, who jumped into the sea. The sea saw two things. It saw Sumera, Yosef ran away from evil. I'm going to split for the Yosef. And Nachshon ben Aminadav ran towards good. He ran to do the will of God by jumping into the sea. Sumera, keep away from bad and do good. That's called Zrizut, Zehirut, and Zrizut. Keep away and do good. Keep away from evil and do good. So that's the reason why the sea split. And we're going to go now to the song, this beautiful song, one of the famous songs in the Torah. There are 10 songs in Tanakh. This is one of the 10 songs, the first song. And you know what? This song is so important. The, the Gemara says that if Chizkiyahu HaMelech, Chizkiyahu HaMelech was the king, Hezekiah, the, towards the end of the first temple, he was a righteous king. He was a sadiq. He was a tremendous sadiq. And he says, he was surrounded, the walls of Jerusalem were surrounded by the Assyrians. Sancherev, Yemach Shemov, surrounded the walls of Jerusalem with his army. And his Kiyahu says to God, he says, I can't fight them. You fight them for me. I'm not going to fight them. I'm not going to bother. I'm going to go to sleep. Hashem, I trust in you. You're going to fight them. And he wakes up in the morning and literally they all died in a plague that night. 180,000 men. The warriors of, of Sanchera died in a plague that night. And the Gemara says, if Hiskia would have sang a song of praise to God, Mashiach would have come. He would have been the Mashiach. Hiskiah Amelech would have been Mashiach. That would be the end of all our troubles for the ages. But he didn't sing a song. Why didn't he sing a song? He says, Everyone knows the greatness of God. I don't have to advertise it. Everyone knows God is great. Wrong. Not everyone knows God is great, but you can advertise it by singing a song. It's so important. This song is so important. And Moshe Rabbeinu sings a song, and all Am Yisrael sing the songs. And the women over here are praised. Why? Because women brought their musical instruments out of Egypt. Can you imagine having the presence of mind. What do we need? What should we pack? And the women said, let's pack our musical instruments. We're bound to sing songs of praise to God on the way. Can you imagine thinking ahead of the miracles we're going to have? Only the women could do that. Women packed their musical instruments. How do we know? Because at the end of the song, the women start singing. But Miriam and Miriam, the prophetess, one of the six prophetesses, uh, we had in our history, Achot Aaron, the sister of Aaron, she took the symbol, right, her drum and her cymbals, and all the women went out with their drums and their cymbals and, the, and their castanets, right? That's what more like it. And they started dancing and singing. The women, all the women started dancing and singing. So they had the presence of mind to take these out. They're going to sing songs to God. 
It's so important to sing a song of praise to God when good things happen. This is something we feed to God. We forget when bad things happen. We all hey, why God? What is God is doing this to us? When good things happen, don't forget. And that's why we make a kiddush on Shabbat. We make a kiddush for good things. A person, a Brit, kiddush, weddings, festivities. Thank God for all this. A sudat todah. But should always make a sudat todah. Darizal says the secret of success is blessing God. When you bless God, God says you acknowledge me as being the source of your blessing. I'm going to bless you even more. You bless God, God blesses you. You sing praises of God, God says you sing he praises to me. I'm going to bless you even more. So important. This song of praises. Have a look at it in Parshat B'Shalah. It's a beautiful song. But it starts off in a strange way. Why? Because the tense of the verb, as Yashir Moshe, then Moshe will sing. B'nai Israel, B'nai Israel. They will sing. What do you think? Kamar says, they will sing in the future. As Yashir Moshe. Okay, when they saw this massive miracle, they sang. It should be in the past tense. They did sing. But it's in the future tense, Rashi says. Why? Because when the dead come alive, well, can you imagine? What a miracle we're going to witness. Oh, it's going to be a bit spooky, right? It's going to graveyards. Everyone's coming out the graves. Uh, the bodies are being put together. And then it says, Moshe will come back and Moshe will sing in the future tense. It's one of the proofs of Tzikyata Metim in the Torah. It's in the future tense. As Yashim Moshe, then Moshe will sing. And all B'nai Israel will sing. When we see the miraculous events of the future coming of the Mashiach, speedily in the days, in our days, so it's in the future tense. Now, one of the big mistakes in this song, and it says uh, about God being the king. It says, Hashem yimloch le'olam ba'ed. Hashem will reign forever and ever. Hashem will reign forever and ever. They should have said, Hashem is reigning now. Hashem is our king right now. They didn't. They said, Hashem will be the king. Big mistake. Again, the rabbis say in the Midrash, they could have brought Mashiach then and there. Moses could have been the Mashiach. Moses could have been the one. If they'd have proclaimed God a king then, instead of saying God will be the king in the future tense, they could have done tremendous things. Amazing ideas over here. So it's an obligation to praise God. When good things go well, you have an obligation to praise God. Where do we learn this? And there's an obligation to emulate Hashem as well. And there's a beautiful line of there. It says, even the maidservant that the sea saw God more than the prophet Ezekiel. This is my God. They can point. This is my God and I will beautify God. I will. How do you beautify God? The Gemara says, do beautiful mitzvot. When you do a mitzvah, do a great mitzvah. Do a beautiful mitzvah. Beautify the mitzvot. Very important idea. The pinnacle of the exodus is the splitting of the sea. Seven days later, that's it. The seventh day of Pesach. But you know what? We don't say Hol Halel. The last seven days of Pesach, we don't say Hol Halel. Only the first day of Pesach, we say Hol Halel. Outside Israel, the first two days, because we had mercy on the Egyptians. They didn't have mercy on us. Our happiness is not complete when other human beings have to die for our happiness. Very tremendous moral idea. Judaism does not view death of our enemies as the greatest event in history. We would rather our enemies would change into our friends. We'd rather our enemies do teshuvah. We should always pray our enemies should do teshuvah. It's very hard to do that. It's much easier to pray, you know, get rid of them, Hashem. No, get rid of them by changing them. Get rid of them by changing their ways. A person is not a rasha anymore if his ways are changing. He's not evil. His ways are changing. He becomes a righteous person. So change their ways, Hashem. All our enemies, their ways should change. They should want to be our best friend. There's Rad Hashem, and they'll help us. There's Rad Hashem. So this is a tremendous song. And when we say Hashem is our king, Hashem is our king now, not in the future. Hashem should be our king now. So now let's move on. Let's move on and talk a little bit about the manna. We don't have much time. The manna. They come out of the sea and they praise God. Yes, they're doing the right thing, but just a couple of days later, it's starting. Listen, it's it's hard. Okay. Uh, Hashem listens to their cries. It's understandable. We're hungry. 
And what are we going to do? You're going to see the greatness of God. What is the greatness of God? In the afternoon, you're going to eat meat, Hashem promises them. In the morning, you're going to eat bread. And you're going to know that I am your Lord, your God. And then, again, this is, this is behavior modification on a very large scale. Every morning of your life, the next 40 years, except for Shabbat. Again, it's very big training. It's a Shabbat. How do you train people? There's a Shabbat. You can't work on Shabbat. The matter falls six days. And on the sixth day, you take a double portion. For sixth day and Shabbat. What a way to train people to keep Shabbat. Amazing training. This is behavior modification on a grand scale for two million odd people coming out of Egypt. God says, test this is a test. I'm going to test the people. Okay, one of the tests was Shabbat. And the people fail straight away. Don't collect the manna on Shabbat. And they go in the fields and they're looking for the manna. They're going out in the desert looking for the manna. They fail the test straight away. Boom. Okay. So God says the test, what's the test of manna? Rashi says the test was how much would people take? Moses says you're only allowed an Omer, a couple of pints of manna for the whole, for the whole day. That's it. So what, how much will they take? Are they going to take too much? It says when they took too much, it rotted. The extra parts rotted. They took too little, it, uh, it increased. So you didn't lose by taking too little. But that was the test of manna going to Rashi. How much is a person satisfied with? That's our test. That's the test of manna still happening today. You know, every single day of our lives, it's a mitzvah to remember the manna. One of the things you have to remember every single day is the manna. What do we remember? I just want to finish off with this idea. There's lots more to talk about. The test of manna was a test for wealth, a test for, for poor or poverty. What kind of test was the manna? You have different opinions among the sages, but we have to remember the manna every single day of our lives. To remember, we have to imagine that when we get our sustenance, it's manna falling from heaven. Hashem is sending the manna to us. Just we have to view it as it's coming straight from Hashem. Whether we work and we get sustenance, we have money in the bank with this, it's all from Hashem. It's all the manna. Every single day of our lives, we have to remember the manna. We're provided for from Hashem. And there's a big argument between Nachmanides, Ramban, who says this was the test for the poor. The people in the wilderness were poor. They had no means of sustenance. Would they be satisfied with what they have today and have faith in God for tomorrow? Building faith in God for tomorrow. Will they grab too much of the pie? Sforno says the test of the wealthy. All the men are coming down like clockwork. They were well provided for. It's a test of wealth. After being well provided for, would people forget the source of their blessing? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's another test. Test of wealth, test of poverty. We should never be tested. Israel Hashem should pass all our tests. And I wish you all Shabbat Shalom from Yerushalayim, Kodesh, many blessings. And Hashem should chow the manna down for us and split all the seas and challenges in our lives. Please, Hashem, pull us through all the challenges of our lives. Split the seas. And the two major parts of seas, the Gemara refers to the challenge of crossing the sea is getting a zivug, getting married to the right person and making money and having a means of living. Two great seas of life, challenges in life. And over here in Israel, security, uh, peace, and brothers, there's a lot of challenges in life. Hashem should split the sea of challenges and make us worthy of the coming of the great salvation of Israel. Hashem. Blessings from Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.